0: Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a recording of the Key Row Film Society, and I am Pastor Neil Wemus. Um, Last week, I did a recording on the Ghostbusters films that have come out, and that kind of started out this new strategy that I'm going with, and we'll see how long it (laughs) goes with this, but what I'm doing is each week is going to have kind of perspective, as I'd call it, or an examination or whatever. So last week, it was the an examination or a perspective on the Ghostbusters franchise. Uh, in, in other months, other times, it could be maybe I want to overview the work of Steven Spielberg or... Um, Dan Aykroyd, or maybe I want to look at a character, this is how I'd fit, fit in the television shows, so maybe I want to look at, um, you know, a character like uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or uh, John Locke from the, the show Lost, or, you know, any of a number of characters that could do that, so it's kind of what I'm going to be doing, and so today we're going to be focusing on a film director. And hopefully they kind of slightly came out in the opening music you heard. The first song you heard was from the, the intro from Beetlejuice. And the second song you heard was the closing from Alice in Wonderland, which were both directed by Tim Burton. And um, the music was composed by uh, Danny Elfman. And so, so I should mention, this is not a Danny Elfman podcast. Nor is this uh, a Helena Bonham Carter podcast. It's about Tim Burton. And so we're going to look at, so the way this is going to work, the way I do, you know, an actor perspective or a director perspective or whatever, is I'm going to look at the select number of their movies, select number of their works, And just kind of look at themes and then make... Sometimes I'll tie the movies in together. And sometimes I'll just focus on a single movie. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to start and I'm going to do a ranking of my 10 favorite uh, Tim Burton films in order. All right? So, number... And so I'm going to say that I've not seen Every Tim Burton movie, there are a few that I have not seen yet. Um, So, like, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I have seen it, but it's been so long since I've seen it Um, that I don't think I could really give a good analysis on it. Um, Let's see here, just going through some of the list of his movies. Uh, I have not seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I have not seen Dark Shadows, haven't seen Big Eyes, and haven't seen the more recent uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Now, I should make a little note, especially on that most recent movie, most Peregr- Miss Peregrines. Uh, there was some... Um, ish, some ish things that came out. and Okay, so Tim Burton created some controversy because somebody had asked him, Rachel Sim, I guess, asked him... Uh, why does he lack diversity in his movie Miss Peregrine? And here's what he said. He said nowadays people are talking about it more. Talking about it more. But things call for things, or they don't. I remember back when I was a child watching the Brady Bunch, and they started to get all politically correct. Like, okay, let's have an Asian child and a black. I used to get more offended by that than just uh, than just. I grew up watching black exploitation movies, right? And I said, that's great. I didn't go like, okay, there should be more white people in this. And so there's the quote. Um, I know what he's, uh, he probably did not word it to the right, but, I get what he's saying is, if you watch, so I watched quite a few Tim Burton movies in preparation for this podcast, and, um, You know, some of them are movies I'd seen before. Some I hadn't seen in years. You know, and and a lot of his movies don't call for diversity. And what I mean by that is because diversity for diversity's sake is not equality. That's, you know, just putting in a, you know, somebody of a different skin color just for the sake of having somebody of different skin color rather than um, they have the ability, they have the talent or... Because sometimes the role doesn't call for it. And when you look at a lot of um, Tim Burton's films, a lot of his movies are period paint pieces. A lot of them take place in years past in different um, cities and in places where diversity wouldn't, honestly wouldn't make sense from um, a story standpoint. And there's still truth to that now. If there's, if you were to make a movie based in many towns in this country, and if that movie was nothing but a bunch of white people, or nothing but a bunch of black people, or nothing but a bunch of Asians, or whatever, it would not be that odd, because there are many places in our country which still do not have much diversity. And so, you know, you make a movie... Diversity is going to happen because of, by cons- good diversity happens as a consequence of the story writing. Um, now I am not going to deny that there isn't uh, problems with our diversity. I think there are definitely movies or TV shows. you know take for example, one of my favorite shows, I'll admit to it, is The Walking Dead. Walking Dead really needs to have more black people. And the reason I say that is because the movie predominantly, at least the first couple seasons, took place in Georgia. And I've li- I I lived a year in Georgia. That's where I did my vicarage. And Georgia has a pretty high percentage African American population. There's a lot of Af- African Americans in many places. Now, are there areas that are very heavily white? Yes. Um, in fact, I specifically where I lived was... But that was a high-income retirement area. But I didn't have to go far to find a high population of African Americans. So, you know, Walking Dead in its early seasons should have shown that a little bit better. Because, I mean, honestly, I'm telling you, in a lot of the towns in my area, not only was there, I mean, you know, like eaton which is not far off from where I lived... You know, it's almost. I think if I remember correctly, it's about sixty percent um, African American, and so that should that should be reflected in the show, but in a lot of what you, a lot of the works of Tim Burton, you know, Sweeney Todd, uh, actually Beetlejuice, um, Edward Scissorhands, uh, Alice Alice in Wonderland. A lot of these Sleepy Hollow, a lot of these do not actually call for diversity. In fact, a lot of them, by the nature of their plot, by the nature of their location, are not supposed to be diverse, and that's kind of the whole. That's a key point in um, the plot. So, with that in mind, I'm gonna we're gonna begin going through my top ten. Uh, Tim Burton films now, like I said, there's a few of them I haven't seen, and there so there's basically twelve Tim Burton movies that I have seen or or if i have i've seen I have a good enough memory to rank it in here, and there's two that were just total flops. Uh, one of them was Planet of the Apes, which is that famous line from Charlton Heston. Guns don't kill people, apes with guns kill people. You know, that famous little ditty there. Um, and then you have Mars Attacks, which is another one he did, which I know some people might like it. I mean, I like the little moments with Jack Nicholson, uh, but really was pretty bad movie, pretty cheesy. So, this leads us into the top ten. These are the ten movies of Tim Burton that I think are the best. So, we're going to begin with number 10 being Sleepy Hollow. Now, I will admit I have never read um, the original story, but the, you know, the original novel. But Sleepy Hollow, just on a movie level, is a good movie. It's got, I mean, Tim Burton was the ideal person to create a very Halloween-esque film, Because his style is, he loves using the blacks and the whites. Uh, Danny Elfman, his favorite composer, is great at um, um, producing or creating uh, a little bit, you know, darker, um, more gothic type music. Um, And by the way, I should note, um, as I go through this list, I am not including the two Batman movies. He did do Batman and Batman Returns but because that goes to another we're going to do it we will one day look over the batman movies so i'm leaving that for that and so that is not included in my list so technically i have seen or i have i've seen 14 or 15 of the tim burton films but we are not going to talk about the batman films and but one of the reasons why he was such a natural director for the rebirth of the Batman franchise, or the redesign of Batman for the general public, was because dark movies is his forte, and that is what he's good at. Um, and so, Sleepy Hollow, it was also, which came out in nineteen ninety nine, also fell right in um, to his, you know, his play box, and you know he did well. He did well with it. It had. Had the feel, uh, the main pro, the story, the way it was put together was a little choppy at points, um, and there's a little bit, there's some campiness in the film. Um, it's it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, and I think especially the ending of it is probably the weakest point in it, but. By and large, it is a it's an enjoyable movie. I still watch it just about every Halloween. Uh, the next up movie is Frankenweenie. This is one of the many animated movies that uh, Tim Burton invested in, and Frankenweenie is about this dog who is in Frankenstein esque story is raised up by his kid by a kid. After he dies, after the dog dies, and I don't, I don't know if there's really much to get dig into with it. It's it was just simply a fun movie. It was enjoyable, and that's about all I have on that. Another animated movie. So this is my number. Uh, so this would be so. Uh, my eighth place movie is Tim Burton's *The Corpse Bride*. Uh, the Corpse Bride is, like I said, another animated film which I hadn't seen before and I didn't totally know the total plot of the movie. And I think that's good because it let me kind of go with it and follow along. Like, okay, it's called The Corpse Bride, so I'm expecting for his wife um, to die at some point in the movie and she somehow she'd raise and that's, there'd be some relationship there. And it doesn't play out like that at all. This, and so the title of the movie is a little misleading. But I think that's okay. Because it makes the story, I think, better. It um, makes it so that you don't totally know where it's going. Um, one of the weaknesses is Tim Burton's animation. Is the animation of the movie. I know it's his style. But a lot of points it was just too creepy of an animation. And I think it detracted from uh, the story, but the story was a good one. And where it did have, where the animation wasn't creepy, it benefited. And so, like I said, uh, *Corpse Bride* is a pretty, it's a good, it's you know, it's got a nice story and um, there's a night there's. There's an element of tragedy, there's an element of romance, there's um, compa- There's moments of compassion and love for others, and then you also have kind of the snotty aristocracy, which is, by the way, a major theme that you'll find in Tim Burton's movies. He has a very strong distaste for aristocracy, for uh, snobbery, for people who... Uh, for the upper class, and so you see that in Corpse Bride, you see that in Sleepy Hollow, um, you see that you're going to see that in much of these other movies that we're going to get to. So, um, and Corpse Bride is no different than that. The major, the the minor villains were snobby, stuck up. The major villain, the primary villain of the movie, was absolutely arrogant, stuck up, prideful. Next up, movie number seven, Alice in Wonderland, and Alice in Wonderland again is a. This is a. I have read the original books by uh, Lewis Carroll, and I, I like the books, and I will straight up tell you that the movie is takes enormous liberties from the books and. It's almost unrecognizable from the books. So, how do I treat this movie? Well, without the, if you were to throw away the books and pretend that it's just its own story, it's actually pretty good. You know, um, I enjoy, there's a good underlying plot, it's imaginative. Uh, has a great soundtrack by Danny Elfman. Uh wonderfully use of colors and by the way that's one of the themes that you get out of uh, Tim Burton's live action films in particular is the a very very good usage of colors. Cuz his films are stereotypically black and white colored. You know darker color schemes. But when and so what it does is whenever he does he because in most of his movies he doesn't use the black and white the entire time most of his movies have moments that are more colorful or more or brighter and when he does it's emphasizing something it's creating a contrast it's creating the he's really he does a wonderful job of creating a contrast of a world that we live in this world that is depressing that is just hopeless and then the colored is used to convey a world that we long for that we hope for and this plays out in many of his um, in many of his films and Alice in Wonderland uh, he uses the colors um, it, it, so when he's in, in at the beginning and at the very end you have a very slightly normal palette. Um I mean there's still a little bit of paleness in there, but it's slightly normal. And I think this is the distinguish between what's a, the non-Wonderland world and Wonderland. And then you have um, and then you when he's in Wonderland, much of it's darker, but when you when she goes to the the palace of the White Queen it's colorful, it's beautiful, and once again, distinguishing between that world of darkness, of hopelessness, and a plan of hope, and peace, and tranquility. And so he's Tim Burton is a master at using the colors, using makeup, using you know anything and everything he can to depict, to affect the emotion in the scene, to let you know what he's trying to get at, Um Alice in Wonderland is also one of those one of at least two movies I could think of that he does where he blends reality and fiction. And you know, one of the one is one of those movies I'm gonna to get to a bit later. But Alice in Wonderland, the whole thing of in Wonderland, you're left wondering. Did she dream this? Or was it real? Did she just conk her head on the ground and find herself in Wonderland? Or did this all really happen? And it's a I like it. That's good I think that's kind of intriguing writing. And I'm going, to get into, I'm going to get to what the underlying theme of Alice in Wonderland is a theme that I think underlies all of his movies. So I'll get to that a little bit later. So, so that's my number seven movie, is Alice in Wonderland. Number six, Edward Scissorhands. This is another movie where he does play... Uh, Edward Scissorhands is a movie of tragedy. A very tragic character... That has a tragic life. There, there are points where it's a, it's a little rough around the edges. There's some act moments in terms of acting that could be a little bit better. But what I like about the movie is again, this movie plays into the you know his dislike of people who are high, think highly of themselves, and so the, the villains of this movie. Are the cocky, the arrogant, the prideful people of the community, and so you know, it's talking about um, diversity. This movie could not be diverse. It can't be, because he the main, with the exception of the one family, the main family of the story. Everybody in this community is a villain, and what they're poking at is kind of the uh, it's kind of the uh, Stepford Wives type story, community, and he wonderfully portrays this, you know, the, and this, is, again, is a case where he's using the colors. When you're in, you know, you go to the place where Edward lives, it's creepy, it's dark, your typical uh, Tim Burton world. When he comes down from the hill, comes down from the mansion, and he comes down to the town below, it's colorful. It's got a very bright greens, bright per- pinks. Um, all these really bright colors letting you know that this is a different world but the colors are not the same kind of bright that you saw in the white queen in alice wonderland the white queen's palace those colors were hopeful but they felt they're the kind but they also felt lifelike so those pink flowers that you see on the trees those are real colors for flowers we've seen that in reality but in Edward Scissorhands, in that town, they have those colors, but they look very plastic. It doesn't feel real. And this is, its even though it's colorful, it's a fake hope. And this is kind of depicting that this is the, the community they live in looks peaceful, looks wonderful, they look kind, it looks idealistic, it looks like you're leaving um to beaver you're leaving it to beaver type community but in reality it's not this isn't mayberry it's actually showing you find throughout the movie the deep-seated hatred and hypocrisy in it so um Alice, so like i said Ed, edward scissorhands my number six movie it's a um well done and by the way um you know Johnny Depp in this role does a really good job because the the trick of in the entire role his hands are made of scissors and so it's in it's so it takes some a special kind of acting to be able to do an entire role with just scissors i mean like look at the scenes when he's trying to eat you know with the fork and everything he does so so incredibly well, and the fact that he was up on the hill for as long as he was, um, tells you, you know that that makes it easier because you know he doesn't have to go in there experienced with using uh, cutlery, using forks and spoons or whatever. He doesn't have to come in because he's lived up on that in that house, and apparently he'd been eating in some other by in some other fashion, but when he comes down there. He has to start to learn and eat like normal people do, which works very well for the actor because he doesn't have to act like he's eating like a professional because he's not. So, it's a good performance by Johnny Depp in it. Um, it was just a very sweet uh, relationship between his character and Winona Ryder's character. And the way that relationship develops is. It's it's well written, so um so there you go. There's my number six movie. Number five. This is the, this is a really popular movie of the late eighties. It's a, a nostalgic favorite, and that is Beetlejuice, uh, starring Michael Keaton, as Beetlejuice. I know what a writer is also in there, and it's a like it's a it's a fun movie. Uh, Beetlejuice, you know, Michael Keaton is just absolutely awesome in his role. And it's, he's the one that makes that movie. Like, you know, hey, Sam <laughs> You hate him, right? You know, those, that little voice and like, talking like this and whatever. Sorry, that's my best impersonation of it. And so I loved his role. He did a great job at it. And it was a it was a fun, you know, like I said, it's a fun, entertaining movie. And... And this one, again, you know, talk about the snobbery. You have it in there. The, the mother in the movie, the, um, the businessmen, all these kind of snobby, um, holier-than-thou or better-than-thou type people, again, is in this movie. Uh, Sweeney Todd, again, plays off of that, the aristocracy. Sweeney Todd is my number four movie on my list. Sweeney Todd is unique on this list because it is a live-action musical. Now, he's done some animated musicals, but this was the live-action one. Corpse Bride was an animated musical, and Nightmare Before Christmas, which I'm going to get to in a little bit, was also an animated musical. Sweeney Todd is the one that's live-action, and what stands out is is actually Johnny Depp, because Johnny Depp is the lead character in this film, and... In his movie, in this movie, he doesn't, I mean, he's not a trained singer. He's not a trained musician. And yet, he very effectively leads this role in a very musical film. And I think he did a good job. I think there's a number of really good casts. And this is another one of those movies where you see the coloring at work. And so in the, most of the movie is dark darkly colored. And I think it's and it's actually very very well the way they do this. They okay, you have two characters. At the very very beginning of the movie this it sets this um parallel in terms of tone. And so okay, so at the very beginning of the movie you have Johnny Depp's character which is sweet or Benjamin Barker and then you have Jamie Campbell Bower who plays Anthony Hope. So at the very beginning, they're coming in to London and they sing this song. And Anthony starts out so hopeful. There is no place like London. And then and so he's talking how hopeful and so how wonderful this city is. And then very, right away, Johnny Depp's, you know, Sweeney Todd steps forward. He says this. No place like London. He says it's deep, dark, with hatred, with bitterness, foulness. And he speaks of the foul nature of the town. And that's how horrible and wretched of a city it is. And then through the movie, you have this different coloring palette. And you have the coloring palette that differentiates. You have... When you see most of the story involving Sweeney Todd, which is most of the movie, because he's the title character, and the movie's about his story, much of it is dark, it's depressing, there's a lot of black, a lot of gray. and But when you see Anthony, there's light. It's a brighter color. And the reason is, it's because this is a man who's hopeful. So I mean, you compare the you compare it. I mean, the main villain, which is played by Alan Rickman, uh, Judge Turpin. Which, by the way, Alan Rickman is definitely going to be um, an actor. I'm going to look into. But the late Alan Rickman playing uh, Judge Turpin, he beat up he you know he did horrible things to uh, Benjamin Barker, who's Sweeney Todd, uh, Johnny Depp's character. He did horrible things to him. He he took his daughter Joanna and. He tortured his wife, did horrible things to her, and so this leaves Johnny, De- you know, Sweeney Todd in bitterness and desiring revenge. But Anthony, when he he gets beaten and treated like gunk by the judge, he comes out a little bit more hopeful, and he sings. He sings that. He sings that song. He sings. I'll steal you, Joanna, I'll steal you. So it's a a hopeful song. And it's joyous. This is, not not joyous, but hopeful, knowing that even though he got beaten down, he's going to rise up and he is going to save her. No matter what. And this is kind of, this is actually a little bit of the damsel in distress story going on here. This is the, the the traditional ancient story of the the prince stealing the princess from the dragon. In this case, the judge is the dragon and the princess, and the princess of Sweeney Todd is Joanna and Anthony is going to save her. And so this is it's a wonderfully crafted story, and Again, Tim Burton is the ideal person to tell the story because he works so incredibly well with the colors, the lighting. And like I said, I don't I don't think there's many act, many directors that do that particular thing as well as um, Tim Burton does. The next movie on my list is Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas was the first animated film that Tim Burton did. And I should note, Tim Burton did not direct this one. He did not produce it. But he did write it. And by the way, notice, I should note, when I say Tim Burton films, I do not pick movies that he only produced. Because anybody that knows anything just because you produced it doesn't really make it your movie. Um, And a lot of times... When movies get released and say this is Tim Burton's film or this is Steven Spielberg presents or whatever, you gotta pay attention to those and see who actually directed it because some of those movies that come up like that's horrible. I don't. I can't believe that you know Steven Spielberg would do that horrible of a movie. Well, it turns out Spielberg was just the producer, which means he just wrote the checks. He didn't actually direct it, so. Um, But Nightmare Before Christmas is one he didn't direct, but he did write it. He was was the primary writer, which is why it's called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. And so, but the color palette is, there's still a dark, there's still lights. There's not a, but there isn't really much of the fluctuation in colors in the movie that you would see in a typical Tim Burton film. But given the fact that Tim Burton was the writer... And he is an, was an experienced director at the time, by, the, by that time. He probably had some in, a lot of input into the directing. But you couldn't, don't 100% see his hand print in there, but you could definitely see it. The music in this movie, I love. And, you know, the ones that I, the one I absolutely love is, I mean, there's, you know, there's a famous one right at the beginning, like "This is Halloween, This is Halloween." Da, 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 da. Okay, I like that, but what I like even more is I love. I mean, after he does this, you know, your joyous Halloween song, very fitting for a Halloween movie. Then you have the more character-driven songs. Every good musical, the best musicals, musicals have. Those character-driven songs, and I—I I didn't always like musicals, but I've learned to like them. Um, you know, like this one, like you know, it's just talked about Sweeney Todd. Um, one, I my, you know, you have like Joanna or the um, There's a barber and his wife, and she was beautiful. You know that. You know, talking about the story, the backstory. Um, you know, Les Mis. You have the. Um, the ever-so-powerful, um... Uh, shoot, I'm having a... Hold on a second. So, with Lay Miz, I'm thinking of, like, um... I Dreamed a Dream, you know, Fontaine's big song. In Nightmare Before Christmas, it is Jack's Lament. Where it has this, you know... It has this little section, this one part that I always... I always like a good... I like... A good emotion, the strong emotional musical songs, and so this is this is the story of Nightmare Before Christmas. So, oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones, an emptiness began to grow. There's something out there, far from my home. So. I probably did get it perfectly there, but that I love that. It's just I love this transition, this deep singing and like I said, it's, it work. It gives into the story of the the Pumpkin King, this King of Terror, the King of live giving out shrieks. Is not content with his life and wants a better world for himself, and it's it's a it's a story that anybody can relate to. How many of us do not go through that situation where we want something better? We want to be somewhere else, you know? And so, like I said, it's a good story. Good. I like the music in it. So, um, that's my number three movie. Number two is one that most people would put number one, and so there's going to be some disagreement, I know, and that is Ed Wood. Ed Wood is one I just saw for the first time today. Um, I saw quite a few Uh, Tim Burton movies in the last 24 hours... Trying to get... So I could do a good podcast. And... Ed Wood was... First off, I will say that Martin Landau... I was watching through the movie the whole time. Like... Martin Landau's... Um... Portrayal... uh, Bella Lugosi... I just kept watching... Like... If this man did not win Best Supporting Actor... There was something seriously wrong with Hollywood, with the Oscars. And I kept thinking of that over and over because I've seen Martin Landau in other movies. And throughout that movie, I thought I was watching the reincarnation of um, of Bella Lugosi. I mean it was an incredible performance. And Then bring in George the Animal Steel in there. Another great selection. But even beyond that, you have... um, You know, again, Johnny Depp. If you can't tell, Johnny Depp is a guy that... Rumor has it, Tim Burton likes to cast him. And it almost feels like this is a Johnny Depp podcast, but it isn't. There's been a few of these movies which he was not in. But... (laughs) um, he had a good performance in this. A very... I mean... The... It'll tell you know, telling the story of him dressing up in women's clothes. I, I thought that was actually a great little point where he's telling the director. I thought, he must be joking. He's just trying to say this to get a job. And it turns out, no. He really does do this. And... Uh, and you can... And there's a lot of little insider jokes about... How, or comments about how the film industry works, tells you, shows you kind of why some movies might go bad, it's because studios cause it to go bad, and, you know, Ed Wood, you know, produced some of the worst movies ever made, and from the looks of it, I mean, it's this. what you're seeing is this man that had this grand vision, these grand ideas for so many movies. And so when you heard him talking, he would give these stories and give these ideas, and he had a vision for a script, and he had a vision for the film. But the problem is he never had the budget. He never had the means to do what he wanted to do. And by the way, that is hitting again at a theme in um, Tim Burton movies is the grandeur. See something else in the world that others don't see and I'm going to get that to that more in a little bit but Ed Wood is a like I said very very well done movie um, good strong performances and it is one where the color um, usage kind of goes out of Tim Burton's um, playbook and the reason is because the entire movie is black and white. Which forced Tim Burton to take different strategies. And I think it it's still made it a good movie. And so, that's my number two ba- favorite uh, Tim Burton film. And this leads me to my favorite one. And that is Big Fish. Uh, Big Fish is... Another one that I just saw in the last twenty four hours to get ready for this podcast, because I remember when it came out, it was getting it got some Oscar buzz, and uh, is very well received. And when I saw it, it's kind of has something similar to Alice in Wonderland, in that you had this whole story going on, and even another, even Life of Pi kind of goes off of the similar story. Life of Pi is not a Tim Burton film, but. The con- similar concept where you have this guy, tell you know, this the main character is telling his son all these stories. And you're like, and you're wondering throughout the entire movie, is this story true or is it false? And they give you, Tim Burton, he gives you, you know, the story, it gives you the hint. At the very beginning of the movie, whether this is true or false. And you you get the hint that everything he tells has some truth to it. Even if it's not completely true, there is some truth to it. And it's a... And I love... And so, like, I love the way um, the movie works throughout with that. And, you know, this incredible story being told to everyone and it's imaginative and especially again you look at the um, the sit, the town of Specter when he first goes there the, again this is a case again Tim Burton using those colors. he doesn't go with the black and white palette in this movie. This is one of the things that makes big fish stand out against pretty much any of his other movies. The black and white palette that he's so popular for using is almost thrown out the window in this one. It's I cannot. There's very, very few moments I can think of where it goes in. The rest of them, but he still uses colors when he goes to Spectre. He you see these bright colors, and he's actually using it for the same reason he did in Edward Scissorhands. Is it this? It's this movie. This. <coughs> This place, it looks so perfect, it's so wonderful, but it's yet, yeah, it's not quite real. And it's such a, um, and it's, you know, one of those, again, showing his talents. And so this leads me into this overarching theme in some of his movies, not all of them, but in many of his movies, he follows into this theme. Of the impossible. And so the last movie I watched, and this is one I've seen before, but it's a rewatch, was Alice in Wonderland. And he, like I said, he made major changes to this movie. And here's just, you know, here's some of the things you hear in the movie. So at the very beginning, you have um, Alice Kingsley's her father, saying, um, The only way to achieve the impossible is to believe it is possible. And then there's this little statement, he, you know, where Alice says, you know, have I gone mad? To which his fa- her father says, I'm afraid so. You're entirely bonkers, but I'll tell you a secret. All the best people are. And you have this scene when she's on the dance and she's, she's out dancing. And she, she's imagining what it would be like if all the women were wearing trousers and all the men were wearing dresses. Or was imagining what it would be like to fly. Or somebody's complaint, in the or this one uh, character is complaining about, uh, or her potential future mother-in-law, to be specific, is complaining about white roses when she wanted ro- red. And Alice says, "Well, what if you could just paint them red?" What an odd thing to say. And so, you have all these little moments where she sees things that are not there. Her father making the statement. I think of six things that are impossible each day. And see, what I see in his movies... is an embracement of seeing just that. The impossible. To have imagination. I mean, look... Even take take what he did with Sleepy Hollow. In Sleepy Hollow, you have the main character played by, again, Johnny Depp. He's going to explore the murders in... Um, in Sleepy Hollow. And everybody's telling him it is magical. But he's saying that there is a life, there is a flesh and blood criminal. And as you go through the story, you find that both of them were right. There was a flesh and blood criminal, but it was also mystical. It was also, also something supernatural. And this is something that keeps going on, is... That Tim Burton is communicating that there is, there's reality, and there is something else. That the mind, the mind, it's all lot very much rooted in this idea that you take what we have (coughs) in this world, and to see something greater. Now, Tim Burton does not appear to have any affections for the church. In fact, most of his movies have negative um, religious people in his films. He does not appear to have a strong view of the religious. Um, But, that being said, he definitely has a sense of spirituality. And I think in this movie, from a Christian, in his films, it's from a Christian, I cannot help but think of what was this quote of C.S. Lewis? I can't remember it exactly, and I'm not going to look it up at this moment, but there's this quote about him saying that, you know, when you have in your mind something that is great, something that this world cannot fill, the only explanation could be that we are made, we are not made for this place. See, this is going into the conscience, and I think, what you have reflected in Tim Burton's films, what he's communicating, is our hardwired reality that we believe in something greater than this world. We live in a world of darkness. We live in a world of death. We live in a world of evil. We live in a world where we have Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton running for president. And I I bet you there's probably... There's a very, very small percentage of people in this country that are comfortable with those choices. And we wish there was a better world. There's a different one. And the reason it, and the thing is there is a different one. There is a better kingdom. And that is the kingdom which we become a citizen of by Christ. That is the kingdom in which we share in When we go to the divine service every week. We go there. We hear of the word. We hear of what Christ is created. And is preparing for us. See this is. I mean. Okay. We as Christians. Have. A place. A thing. That goes very well with what Tim Burton describes. And it's called. It's the sacraments. That. You go, you know, a little baby is brought up to the baptismal font. The pastor takes the water, and he pours, he says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You just see water being poured on the child. What you don't see is the sinful nature of that child being stripped away, lifted off of him, or her, and placed upon Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross when he suffered the full penalty, the full punishment for the sin of that child. And that child, in exchange, received the righteousness of Jesus. And they were made Fit for a king, and then the other sacrament. You come up to the altar, and the pastor gives you very often, if it's like our church, just little little wafers, bread, but a little itty bitty cracker like cracker like bread wafers, and you eat it. He says, "This take eat." This is the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given unto death for you. Then he gives you, maybe it's out of the chalice, the common cup, which I prefer. Or it's, maybe it's out of the little individual cup, whatever. And you drink, what is just wine? Whether it's red, white, yellow, whatever. You drink it. And what you that's all you see. But in that bread is... The body of Jesus. In that blood. That wine is the blood of Jesus. And by that body and that blood, your sin is is being cleansed away. And you are being strengthened and being made ready for an eternal kingdom. And what you see at the altar is just, you know... Mary from down the street or whoever, or, you know, maybe your brother, your sister, your parents, your grandparents, your neighbor, or whatever. That's what you see, but what you don't see is every single person that has ever died in the faith also join with you that you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And we say this in our in our creed in our, our liturgy. Therefore, the angels and archangels with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying. See, there's the reality that we see. With our eyes, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, we we taste, we touch, we hear. But there's reality that's beyond even our imaginations. There's a reality that's impossible. And that reality meets itself at the Lord's Supper. In a world where there is this dark, there's this black. You come into the church, a place set apart from this world. For a moment of peace. And that's why you hear that ancient liturgy. Why you hear those hymns. It's nothing like you hear on the radio, and the reason is is because it's distinguishing itself from the world. Because we need it, it reminds us that we are strangers here. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, we long for a better world. So, what do we do until then? Until we face death, until we meet, we enter into his kingdom, eternal kingdom. What do we do? We're not content with this world. We can't be. We see the world and we wonder, what is possible? Some men dream things. Dream things that will never be and say why. And I dream things that it shall never be and I say why not. I know I butchered that quote. Some people, and so, why not? We should dream things and say, why not? There's so much we could be doing in this world to serve our brothers and sisters to serve those who are in need. The reason we live in the situation is that we live in is we're complacent. We don't desire the better world. We give it lip service. But if we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, should we not desire to make the place we are at more and more like that kingdom? That's, I mean, that's not what Tim Burton's trying to do. But I believe that we as Christians have an answer to what he is trying to do. Tim Burton sees the darkness and the dankness and the death of our world. And he sees possibilities, and he sees hope of a light that is different, and it's conveyed throughout his films. He can't stand arrogance and pride. And we as Christians should have answers to that. As a Christian, we have no room for arrogance and pride because we are poor, miserable sinners deserving of God's judgment, deserving of hell and death, and yet we are recipients of grace beyond measure. And Tim Burton in his film shows longing for a world better than this. We as Christians know of a world better than this. In fact, we are citizens of that better world. And as we live in a world where so many desire a better world, the reason you are here is to speak up and act to make this world a little bit better but also to point people to the world, the life of the world that is to come in Christ Jesus. So that's what I got for Tim Burton's films. He's a great director and he's got great movies. I mean, he's got some duds, yes, but he's got a lot of good movies. So that's what I've got. I hope this was a blessing and a joy to you. Um, Again, I am Pastor Neil Wemus. I'm a pastor in Northwest Iowa. Uh, You can find out about our our churches at www.iowaoclutherans.org. And next week, I'm going to come back to you with another with a character perspective, and I don't know who the character is, it all depends upon what happens in Walking Dead on Sunday. So, warning: next week's podcast will have a major spoiler. Alright? So of Walking Dead. So with that. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you, the Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen.